Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hi everyone, Ron Spomer here, feeling just ducky. If you're listening on the podcast, I have a duck decoy, a mallard, here on the desk in front of me. And behind me is my photograph of some wood ducks up in a snowy crabapple tree. It's hot, it's summertime, so I thought I would cool things off with a little winter duck. (laughs) But we want to do is answer your questions today, not talk about ducks and duck hunting. So let's get the computer with the list of questions that our team has put together for me. And I hope I uh, can answer them all, and we will see if there are any corrections from the last couple of Q&As where I might have gotten something wrong. First up, it says, um, no name, but what do you recommend for rabbit hunting? Boy, that's a good one. I'm like, I like to see some interest in rabbit hunting. You know, before I tell you what I would shoot uh, for rabbits, back in the early half or so of the 20th century, Cottontail rabbits were like the number one game animal in North America. Everyone went small game hunting for rabbits. Number two, tree squirrels. These days, you hardly hear of anyone going rabbit hunting. What changed? Deer population, turkey population. (laughs) Back in the first half of the 20th century, we were coming off of the market hunting era in which so much wildlife had been knocked back to next to nothing. They even thought turkeys might be going extinct, if you can believe that. So there was a lot of rabbit around. There were small farms, lots of weeds, great habitat for cottontails. So people went cottontail hunting and pretty similar with tree squirrels. The forests were starting to regenerate. Uh, Farmers were planting a lot of trees around their, their farms and such. So the tree squirrels were doing well. So that's why it was so popular. Now it's fallen by the wayside quite a bit. And part of the reason is not just that everyone's too busy hunting turkeys and deer and such, but the rabbit population has declined, at least in my experience, from what I have seen. Now, they'll bounce back quickly when the right habitat is there. But, you know, similar to pheasants, quail, any of the ground nesting upland game birds, those have been awfully hard hit for the same reasons. We're cleaning up the land, so to speak, farming edge to edge, getting rid of weeds, lots of chemicals to control the weeds and stuff. And a lot of our upland game species and our small game, they thrive in disturbed habitats, what we call first successional stages of vegetation coming back. So you're not going to find a lot of cottontails in a mature forest, for instance. They're more along the edges and in the brushlands and wherever you've disturbed something. And of course, if you throw in a little bit of agriculture with some grains and stuff, boy, that really helps because then they've got more to eat. So where I find the most cottontail abundance these days, uh, even I can nail it down to a state, South Dakota, 
where they've got shelter belts established next to the cornfields um, or the wheat fields or whatever they've got for grain. And then some old farmsteads where they might have some good protection. And this is going to sound kind of weird, but <laughs> actually junk, <laughs> junked cars, old farm equipment, anything that provides overhead protection against hawks and a little burrow to run into to get away from the ground predators foxes and such you find an old abandoned farmstead with some junk around it like that and then the cornfield next door and a few trees planted around the place and it can be cottontail heaven and then the other one are the new shelter belts that they're planting in the wildlife areas crp fields and such the crp is plenty of grass in it for escape cover but then if they plant a row or several rows of trees along the edge of that that gives more escape cover to the cottontails than the cornfields right next door and they have got a little paradise and you can really find big numbers and most people aren't bothering with them because they're hunting pheasants and prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse and such so Good idea to go rabbit hunting here. So what do I recommend? Two things, either a 22 rimfire or a shotgun. Shotgun, pretty basic stuff. You just want to use probably six shot or four shot. And you can roll with a, anything from a 410 on up. Uh, I like to minimize the number of pellets I put in a rabbit. It's no fun picking the, either the pellets or the hair out of the meat. So I generally use a 22. But if I am using a scatter gun, I, I like to keep the shot a little heavier, a larger size and diameter. That would be number four. And then there are fewer of those pellets. And I also use a light load, like three quarters of an ounce or an ounce of shot instead of ounce and a quarter, ounce and a half that you usually find in a 12 gauge. You can find one ounce loads in 12 gauge. They're light. They don't recoil as much and you don't need that many pellets to roll a cottontail. So... That's what I recommend there. For the 22, you can do darn well with 22 shorts. Um, they're not as popular anymore as they used to be, but that was kind of a meat hunter's cartridge back in my day and works really well. But a lot of 22s these days only take 22 long rifle, primarily because they're auto loading and it takes that much power to cycle the action. But nothing wrong with that. You can get some fairly low-powered 22s. Even if it doesn't cycle the action, you can shoot once and manually cycle it for your next shot, something like that. Or just use a bold action or a single shot or something. But yeah, I think a low velocity. I wouldn't go for the high-velocity 22 long rifles on a, uh, a rabbit. Uh, keep it low. It doesn't take much to drop a rabbit. And then I go for headshots because you don't want to ruin any of that meat. It is so tender. It's absolutely fantastic. And the same goes for tree squirrels. Some people turn up their noses at the very idea of eating a tree rat. But oh my gosh, fox squirrels and gray squirrels are delicious. I'll give cottontail the top of the heap and then comes the tree squirrels right under them. So there you go. That's what I recommend. Adam. Adam asks, is there a pack system for holding a rifle that you would recommend? I'm trying to plan for the, my first moose hunt, and I would love some of your wisdom when it comes to selecting the proper gear. Ah, oh, gosh, that's a good one. You know, there are some packs that are designed specifically to have sort of a scabbard in them to slide your rifle in. And I think the one that I first saw this on was an Eberly stock. Eberly stock out of Boise, Idaho. And I eventually met the proprietor because I was living in Boise. And we went out and did some hunting together. And he's got some pretty cool pack designs. They're pretty popular. You might want to check him out. In fact, I might uh, ask the team here that they could put a link on. Maybe you could 
find a place to buy it there. But several of those from Everly Stock. But over the years, I've used a lot of packs. And I started out my backpack hunting with just what would be called hippie packs. <laughs> just backpacks that were used for going backpacking. For scenic tours and kinds of stuff. I had one of those, picked one up and started elk hunting with it and did really well. And what I figured out was I could use these straps on the outside of the pack to hold my rifle. So I could slide it on this side or that side or even on the back and just wrap the straps around it. Because most of what you're doing is covering ground. And when it's getting into game, you start to see some sign, you take it off and you're ready to go. But a lot of guys want to have instant access. I wasn't so much worried about that because... Most of the time, by the time I saw a game, it was generally at a distance or it wasn't exactly what I wanted to shoot. I just said, oh, there's a deer. Now I need to figure out what it is so I could take the pack off, get the rifle out, get the binoculars all, and then start hunting. So do it either way you want. But I found that almost any full-sized backpack for a backpack hunt will have some way that you can use a rifle sliding it in the outside somewhere to strap it on. Some of them will have those external side pockets that have a tent pole slot down them. Those work really well too. So lots of good options. And of course, these days, it's not just hippie backpacks. A lot of manufacturers are building specifically for hunting. Some are set up to carry your bow, some for a rifle. So snoop around and you'll find plenty of them. All right, TRT JR22. He asked, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on hearing protection while hunting. I'm in my mid-30s and already have some hearing damage from my time in the service. <laughs> Welcome to the party there. <laughs> Is it significant enough to worry about if I'm hunting with a 308? Would you have done anything differently when you were a younger hunter? Boy, howdy, would I? I have a serious hearing loss in the upper registers. That's why I can't hear a lot of songbirds anymore. Um, and it's quite stressful and I wish I'd protected my hearing. I started detecting this. I was in ROTC shooting a Garand at the range and I was shooting very well, competing against my roommate who was a hunter too. And we were showing off until it struck me. Hey, Neil, if we score a hundred points on this one and we end up going through ROTC and into the service, we're going to probably be sent to the front lines because of such good shooters. <laughs> so I put a few of them out of the 10 ring just to even the score a little bit. At any rate, um, if I were starting over, I would definitely wear hearing protection. I started after that incident, my, my ears are ringing so bad because you can imagine I was lying prone in the line with all the rest of the guys in ROTC and we're all banging away with no ear protection. I couldn't believe it afterwards. My ears were ringing for days. And that's where I tuned in on the concept of having some kind of hearing protection. So I went with, at the time, there was some kind of a little device that had a bouncing plug in it. And the concussion of a loud bang was supposed to close that plug. So you could wear them in your ear and walk along and hear pretty well until the gunshot drove that thing to close it. The problem was it kind of went ding, 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 ding when you stepped, when you walked. You could hear this thing rattling around a little bit in there. But I was pretty persistent in using that. But, of course, every once in a while you would forget and you'd shoot and then it would remind you because you just hurt your ears again. So I tried with muffs, no, that doesn't work because you're hunting. You can't hear anything. You put the foamy plugs in, that's great. They don't sweat up and they're not big clanky things on your head. But then it's like walking around with your fingers in your ears 
and you can hear yourself breathe. You can hear your heart beating, and ah, that just doesn't work. I want to hear wildlife. Fortunately, these days we have this electronic hearing protection stuff. Several companies out there are making these devices. They're sort of like a glorified hearing aid. They can tune those little computer inside and they can tune them to enhance certain sounds and shut off other sounds. So I got to hunt with uh, a guy who's got Tetra is one of these companies. And he took me uh, waterfowl hunting last winter and showed me what he was doing. And it was pretty interesting. He gets on his computer and he plugs it into these little devices and he tunes things up to match what I needed to enhance my hearing for the sounds of the deer walking through the woods, the elk bugling, the turkey gobbling and all that kind of stuff. Wow, that was pretty cool. But then when the gunshot goes off, shuts off completely. And he claims that he's knocking around 25 to 30 decibels of sound off, which is pretty much what the classic shell muffs do. And or the foamy plugs that you stick in. And you're getting sound through those things as you're walking and hunting. So you don't have that complete shutoff problem. Those is what I, those are what I would recommend you look for. Um, as I said, this is Tetra. I really like what they did. Over the years, I've tried some others. Can't remember all the names. I think there's Wild Ear. There's uh, ESP, I believe. Um, several brands like that. Silencer Co. maybe, or is that a suppressor company? At any rate, do a search for those electronic hearing, uh, what do they call them? Not necessarily enhancers, but uh, they shut off that loud sound. That's what you want to look for. Um, as far, that, that is the best that I've found so far. And I can shoot with those and not get the ringing in the ears afterwards. So I'm pretty sure they're doing the job. Um, that's what I would recommend doing, yes. And your 308 is going to have more than enough sound volume to damage your hearing. Even a 22 does. The 22 rimfire long rifle goes off at around 140 decibels, I think. Um, 85 decibels is the benchmark that's set for potential damage on a regular sound level for an hour. If you hear at 85 decibels of noise in your factory or somewhere where you're working for an hour, there's damage. But a single 140 grain blast, there's nerve damage. And the louder you are, the more nerve damage there is. So you want to cut that down. And that 308 is probably going off at 150 or 160. So that's a lot of harsh sound. It's going to hurt. All right. Good question. Hi, folks. Hey, I'm excited to report on a new project my team and I have been working on for months. It's the RSO store where you can buy RSO hats, T-shirts, mugs, some of my photographic prints. And if you're an RSO TV member, you get 15% off all the time. And you can see all of my YouTube videos ad free and additional exclusive videos you'll find nowhere else check it out and let me know what you think in the comments below doesn't want to use the name but he asks or she asks can you talk about the history and performance of the 376 styer cartridge i really can't that is a cartridge that i have ignored for years it's a 37 probably like a 375 diameter bullet and that's about all i know about it i've never used one never i don't think i even have a sample in my collection but I would imagine that it's getting close to the performance of a 375 H&H Magnum, and it's shorter. I know it's shorter. So it's probably a short fat on 375. This is one where I'm going to have to ask my audience to really 
clarify things. So write in and straighten me out on exactly what the 376 Steyr cartridge is. I'm pretty sure it's a German round. Um, and they're going to make it in Steyr rifles. Now, I have worked with some Steyr rifles, but they were chambered for 308 Winchester. So I'm guessing that 376 Steyr is a fairly popular um, hog cartridge in uh, Europe where they do the big <laughs> Russian wars. There's some really big ones. So I would imagine they're looking for that. And they probably use it in Africa. I don't know if it's legal for buffalo in some countries, but it might be. If it's a 375, it just depends on how much energy it's putting out. All right, good question, bad answer. <laughs> you got me on that one. This is from John, and he asks, is the 35 Remington dead? Ah, not dead, but moribund. It is on its way out. And here's why. The 35 Remington came out around 1908. It was chambered in the Model 8 Remington auto-loading rifle, which was invented by John Moses Browning. Usually think of Browning and Winchesters, but here he has one in the Remington. And if I remember right, the story was he was trying to sell this to Winchester and he always sold them his complete patent. And then they did what they wanted with it and called it the Winchester whatever. And he had gotten to the point where he thought he should get royalties and he would make more money. So he went and said, I want to sell you my autoloader idea here. And they they wouldn't do it. So he went to Fabrique Nationale, and they started manufacturing the auto-loading shotgun. Well, the rifle is the same basic principle. It's the long recoil system in which the barrel comes back into the action to cycle it. And he just made it in a rifle format. Fabrique Nationale was making that. I think they called it maybe the Model 5 or something. And then he sold the rights for manufacture in the United States to Remington. So he was really getting smart with his marketing now. He was limiting who could build it and sell it where. So Remington made it as a Model 8. And then they made several cartridges to fit it. Now, this was in the era when lever actions were king. So it was something new, really quite radical, an auto-loading rifle. So what they did was design some rimless cartridges for the vertical stack magazine with a pointy pointier bullets for more efficiency. This was all just beginning to be developed. So they were onto something, but the uh, pressures, they didn't push them very high. It wasn't like the bold actions that were coming down the road that could really take the pressures. So I think the uh, allowable chamber pressure on that 35 Remington was somewhere under 40,000, probably around 35,000 PSI, maybe even a little lower than that. So it did not really crank out the velocity or the energy. And the velocity of it was somewhere 1,900 feet per second to maybe 2,000, 2,200, depending on bullet weight. 180 grain bullet, 200 grain bullet, 220 grain bullet. I think that's about as heavy as they got. And in a 35 caliber, that is not going to be a very long bullet. So it's not going to have good efficiency traveling through the air. So it's kind of a little bit of a hybrid between the old flat-nosed, slow lever-action cartridges like the 30-30 and all the rest of them and the more modern pointed bullet ones that were coming down the pike. So they did okay with it. The most famous rifle was probably the one used by that Texas Ranger, Frank Hamer. You ever see that Bonnie and Clyde movie where he was trying to run those two outlaws down? When they shot up their car at the end of that movie, well, in real life as well, a couple of the rifles used were the Model 8, and I think that was one of Frank's favorites, so he probably had one. Now, it was chambered in the 25 Remington, the 30 Remington, I believe, the 32 Remington, the 35 Remington. Don't think they had anything bigger than that. 
But that was the era when the 35 Remington had its heyday. And a lot of hunters grabbed onto it and liked it because they thought this is better than a 30-30 because it's the 35 caliber bullet. It's 220 grains at the top end instead of 170 grains in the 30-30. So became pretty popular as a woods hunting rifle, similar to the Lever Action 30-30s. Uh, probably even a little faster because it was a semi-auto. So that's where it had its heyday. But these days, folks realize it's really not much different than the 3030. You can have a little more energy in those bullets, but at longer ranges, I think the higher BC potentially of the 3030 bullet might give it a little more retained energy. But for close range stuff, say inside of 150 yards, yeah, you're hitting them with a pretty heavy bullet. You're going to get a good good performance for deer. But in this day and age with the, the rush to the long, sleek, high BC bullets, I don't know that it's ever going to take off again. So I think it'll hang around for a while. Pretty hard to find a rifle chamber for it anymore. But hey, if you've got an old one, they still make ammunition at Winchester. And I think Remington's starting up again. So you're going to be able to find some ammo for it. And it'll be a great whitetail woods rifle. Good for black bear too. All right, the 35 Remington is not dead. It's just gasping for breath. Two Punish One asks, what is the maximum effective range for hunting deer and hogs with a 450 Bushmaster? Who? All right, the 450 Bushmaster is the, as much as I know, the widest, largest caliber you can shoot in an AR-15. And that's why it was designed. They wanted a big, heavy bullet in a in an AR. So it's only about 2.260 inches total length, just like the 223. Has to fit in that magazine and that short action. But it throws 250, 260, 270 maybe grain bullets. So pretty heavy, 45 caliber, obviously. Not a 458, though. It's a .452, little bit narrower bullet. But the, obviously, you're, it's designed for bigger game. You want a bigger bullet, a bigger punch. What it suffers from are two things, low velocity and relatively inefficient ballistics coefficient on that bullet. But for, again, a, a close range proposition, I think you're looking at optimum 100 to 150 yards with good training, probably 200 I don't know what you're going to have for retained energy. The initial energy at, say, oh, I think they launch at around 2,000 feet per second, 270 grain bullet, something in that range. So you're going to have probably 2,500 foot-pounds of energy. Not huge, but it's a big bullet. And, you know, weight always keeps the momentum going a little bit better. But then again, it also, since it's not so long, does not have what's called a high sectional density. Sectional density number is high. That means your bullet's pretty long for its weight and it'll keep driving because more of the weight is in the shank behind the expanded nose. It's not going to have that going for it either. So 150 yards, but it'll, you know, I wouldn't think it's going to bounce off of a hog or a deer at 200 yards if you can put it in there. But your drops might be pretty significant out at that distance. So that's what I know about the Bushmaster. I've only shot one a, a few times and I haven't hunted or taken game with one, but I can see where it would work pretty well for close range deer hunting. This one is from No Name Again. They prefer we do not identify them, but they want to ask us about deer hunting with a 22250. Oh, I always like these. In a 22250 for deer hunting, do you want a bullet that will pass right through like a partition or a monolithic bullet? What is your opinion and what are your experiences? 
my experiences with the 22-250 on deer uh, involve 55 grain, flat base, Nosler bullet back in the day. Um, that was pretty much a cup and core bullet with a thin jacket. Wasn't super explosive like a high varmint bullet, like a ballistic tip varmint today, but it was not what you would call a controlled expansion bullet. But I put it behind his shoulder and it pretty much exploded in the lungs and heart. Quick kill works great. And pretty much any explosive bullet like that will do that. The problem with those, and the reason that some states don't allow highly frangible varmint bullets like that, is because if you don't put it behind the shoulder and slip it through a rib or between the ribs, there's the potential that the bullet goes to pieces before it penetrates deep enough to reach the vital organs. And that's your goal. You're trying to get into the heart, lungs, cause massive hemorrhaging quickly, quick demise. So I cannot in good conscience recommend those um, unless you're an expert. I knew a guy in South Dakota worked for the fishing game department and he just doted on the 22250 for everything, pronghorn and deer, mule deer, as well as whitetail. But he was an excellent shot and he would put it in the neck, hit the spine and lights out right now. That was his shtick. I've never been a big fan of the neck shot because too often, you shoot a little bit high and you miss the spine, you just stun the animal. And I've done that on some whitetails. Down they go and I pat myself on the back and they jump up and I have to shoot them again. Fortunately, I've never lost one doing that, but you've got to be ready for it with the next shot. So my preference, broadside, tight behind your shoulder, top of the heart, deadly. Now, I have used, experimented with bullets that are designed to stay in one piece and shoot all the way through. And I took a doe coming right at me driving it back in, and that worked pretty darn well. Bullet stayed inside, obviously, but when you're going right over the heart in the middle like that, you've got them. She ran like so many deer do when I shoot them with anything. 270s, 30-odd sixes, 300 wind mags. I've used all sorts of big stuff on whitetails, and they take off running until the blood pressure drops and they faint. Standard process. Uh, also, 75-grain um, Swift Sirocco and did real well and a 60 grain partition. So those are your controlled expansion, bonded and or partition bullets that would shoot through. And the 60 grain bullet did shoot through. Man, did that thing keep going. That was amazing. I broke the shoulder, I clipped the spine and I broke the hip and that bullet kept going. I was just dumbfounded. And the shot was at about 150 yards. So that was a surprise actually. So I can go either way. I think on the safe side, you go for the controlled expansion bullet just to make sure that you're going to reach the vitals, even if it passes through, and then expect that animal to make a dash until the blood pressure drops, and you've got him. But as I said, I really can't say that the ones that I shot with those light bullets in a 22-250 that shot all the way through acted any difference than deer that I've shot with anything and everything including once a 50 caliber full patch muzzleloader bullet shot right through a doe and she took off running like I hadn't even touched her until she ran on the blood pressure dropped and she fainted and then she expired so but it, it all works if you put the bullet in the right place looks like the end gosh guys it's like I just got here and we're done already well, thanks for sending in all those questions, folks. I really appreciate it. Um, if anyone out there has more information on that 376 Steyer cartridge, I will make it a point to read up on that one and have a little more information in the old hard drive for you next time. But send me in some uh, 
comments and details on that. Let me know how it works for hunting. I'm imagining that's a pretty effective cartridge for some bigger animals. That's it for this time, folks. This is Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Thanks for listening on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for watching. If you're at YouTube, catch us at ronspomeroutdoors.com, our website, and Ron Spomer Outdoors regular YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Hunt honest and shoot straight. where you think they are. Any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.